Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to you about nothing. Uh, Emptiness, meaninglessness, the nature of things. Uh, But before we get into nothing, um, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of this thing, the Infinite Spark of Being, and all that that entails, you can do that at theinfinitesparkofbeing.com where you could buy uh, t-shirts, tank tops, uh, either one of the books, hoodies, art prints. Um, There's also a Patreon link that will allow you, if you'd like, to pledge $1 or $5 a month to the Infinite Spark of Being. Um, I did my first of who knows how many sessions at the Metaphysical Healing Institute of Palm Beach, and it was a lot of fun, Uh, a good little turnout. So if you're in South Florida, and you'd like to check this out, Uh, it's every other Saturday at the Metaphysical Healing Institute of Palm Beach, which is in Lantana. Uh, Follow the Infinite Spark of Being on Instagram for more on that. So if the first one was on the 4th, I guess the next one would be on the 18th of December. It's every other Saturday evening from 6.30 to 8. I may shorten it. It seemed a little long. I don't know. We'll feel it out. Um, So here we are. Nothing. Let's get started. I once heard a man say that humans are meaning-making machines, and I really like that. Um, We give things meaning. I think that sometimes we want things to have intrinsic meaning or value, but they just don't, which creates a lot of problems for us, Um, especially when we want everyone else to feel the same way we do when it comes to how meaningful or how important something is to us. Uh, And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Um, I mentioned in a previous episode that I once, while in an altered state of consciousness, was overwhelmed with sadness due to the realization that nothing mattered. And remember, my entire life has been filled with creating, whether it's music, art, uh, working as a designer, whatever it was. Nothing I'd ever created, whether it was books, music, art, or anything else, mattered. Uh, Love didn't matter. Art didn't matter. Books, music, whatever. None of it mattered. Nothing I'd ever done or ever will do meant anything to me or anyone else. And that was the really hard part was that all of a sudden within me, it had no meaning. And it crushed me. I remember crying. And I don't mean, not weeping. I wasn't glass. I was crying. Um... I was very sad and I remember it being, I remember being so sad and, and panic stricken that I had to tell myself to breathe because it felt like I had been lied to for years by like someone that you love, you know, my entire reality was unraveling. And in a way it was, at least in my mind at that time it was, but uh, then something interesting happened. I sat with the sadness and the panic so long, which honestly, I don't know how long it was, you know, how those things go. It switched poles. Um, I began to feel euphoric and it wasn't really instant. Again, I don't know, but it kind of washed over me slowly and I began to feel this ease and love, um, love in the way you feel warmth when you're excited to see somebody. 
And it also had a humorous quality to it. Um, I know I've talked about this before, so bear with me, but I realized that it didn't matter, but it didn't matter in the best possible way. You know, some of these things don't come to us as words or pictures, really. They come to us as a knowing with a capital K. Like your mind is this hard drive and suddenly there's a new data pack or something was downloaded and it's like now you just know something. And it was this realization that this birth is like play, uh, the way a child plays. We play in this life. Um, and I always think of the word lila, which in Sanskrit uh, can mean divine play, act, sport. You get the meaning. But it was the realization that, that this is fun. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but I'm at a place in my life where I have found some humor in some of the horror. Maybe the situation as a whole is incredibly sad, but there is humor in some of the tiny pieces. And some of you have sat with me one-on-one -on -one and, and you found some laughter in some of these traumas. I remember uh, Ram Dass, he was saying in a talk once that he, well, he used the term hor the horrible beauty of life, which I liked a lot. Also, my parents had a really dark sense of humor, so I'm already uh, kind of geared towards that. You know, a, uh, a funny story. I was actually telling this story last night, and I, I may have mentioned it in the one about my mom dying. But um, I'm so if you've ever been in a hospital room, you're there with somebody while they're dying. It's incredibly depressing. It's very sad. And then at night, when the lights are out, it's just it's shitty. <laughs> so picture that, right? Uh, my mom's sisters, my two aunts, Jerry and Janet. Yes, Jean, Janet, Jerry, and Jim. Very creative. Um, Jerry rolls Janet into the room. Janet's in a wheelchair. And Janet is very religious. Christian religious. Um, and so she's sitting with my mom. Now my mom, it wasn't looking good, right? And my mom wasn't doing great. But we weren't like... This may have been like week two, you know, it wasn't like week four. It may have been, actually, I don't know if it was like three and a half weeks or four weeks, whatever, but it was fairly early. There was, I, I kind of felt we're at an end, end game kind of thing. Anyway, Janet rolls in and she's holding my mom's hand and telling her, you know, let go into the light. Jesus has been building a mansion for you for 2,000 years. And the 2,000 years is what stuck with me. Now, I'm in a chair in the corner just watching this, and I'm not happy. Um, I'm not happy at all. I'm just sitting there staring like, my fucking God, kill me. And uh, she's trying to get my mom to let go into the light. My mom's not, like, there yet, but... It was very apparent to me that Janet was saying is because Janet's uncomfortable with the amount of suffering her sister's in. And if Janet would just feel better, if mom would just die and she could move on. But anyway, um, I thought it was funny because that was when I went over to my mom. My mom just kind of looked at me like, Jesus Christ. And that's when we had the interesting conversation about what's it like to die and you know, asked her if she believed in God, yada, yada. But anyway, um, but in this moment, it's Yes, my mom is dying at that moment. This is my mother. Like, it, my mother is my first home, but holy shit, that was funny to me. <laughs> it just, my aunt just, I don't know, 
maybe it's not that it's funny to me. Anyway, it goes back to the idea of, um, the plane being in the air, right? You can't do anything about it. It took off. However, what you do on the flight will dictate how the flight goes, right? So the mom is dying plane is in the air. So what are we going to do? How are we going to navigate this? And this, so this kind of takes us to something that I believe is vital in life, right? It's, it's in the occult and spirituality and religion, whatever. And it's the ability to hold two diametrically opposed ideas in the mind at the same time, find value uh, in both of the ideas. And you find the necessity in both, right? So mom is dying. This is very sad. I was very sad, but I also found this incredibly fucking funny with my ridiculous aunt trying to talk my mom into, you know, it's funny. If you've ever seen the movie Poltergeist, there's something about my aunt that reminds me of that weird little creepy old lady that's telling her to go away from the light. I don't know. So, um, for instance, you're experiencing sadness. Uh, you have to experience this feeling, this emotion. You can't just stuff it down. It doesn't go anywhere. It just waits and comes out some other way, usually sideways. So though you are soul, you are awareness, you still have to be in this body and feel this feeling. You have to be both awareness and sad. You have to be soul and you have to be sad. You have to be pure white light and a biological entity that experiences sadness and loss. So um, since I mentioned my mother, I'll continue along this line of thinking, especially since so many of you reached out to me about death. Um, so there's a meaning in the event of death. There is the meaning that the mind, the ego, the body put on this event. And it's undeniable. However, there is also the belief around the event. The belief that the soul is dropping this body, the belief that the mind, the consciousness, we as soul itself will persist after the life force energy or prana leaves this particular body. Now, I can't prove that. I can prove that the body is dead. I can't prove any of the spiritual or religious beliefs around it. Regardless of any mystical experiences any of us have had, that's not proof. That is experience, experience that happened through the mind. So you might ask, well, what about the shared mystical experience? Well, prove it. Can you prove it to others without using language and other mind faculty to express it? Show it, show it to me. You can't. It's impossible. All we have is our word. And I've written about mine, like my experiences, especially in the first book, Agreement. But all I have is that. Now, this might sound disheartening to some of you. And, and that's where we separate those who are willing to take the beating and go up the mountain and those who just aren't. Uh, this is what Chögyam Trungpa meant when he told those people at, at a talk that you know, he showed up drunk and three hours late when he said, go get your money back because the spiritual path is one insult to the ego after another. Now, <laughs> some of us can take that and some of us can't. Or to put it another way, some of us are ripe for the beating and some of us just aren't. And there's only one way to find out. You take the beating. 
And I can tell you over the years, I have taken a spiritual beating. So <laughs> this is where humor comes in, the cosmic joke or the cosmic giggle. Um, Alan Watts, the British philosopher and Zen enthusiast, once said that Buddhism had a joke-like quality to it, meaning that there's always this ah moment that you feel, it's a feeling you have when you hear a good joke, how it all kind of like comes together at the end and you laugh. The path has the same quality. There's, a, there's an ah, I get it moment. And then you find humor in the fact that you don't get it and you were so sure that you had gotten it. So we know that belief is basically a non-quantifiable thought exercise where we decide or choose as much as we believe we choose to see our uh, or perceive ourselves in the world or reality a certain way. And this thought exercise or belief gives us a certain experience of reality. We shift our perception and our reality, our experience of reality, it changes, right? Um, we apply a new meaning to things, a meaning that is usually antithetical to the meaning that popular culture gives something. Like death, for instance. Um, that's a good one, right? So this is all of occult thinking as well as religion and spirituality. They're all the same. And politics is kind of the same too. And this might cause some of you to tighten because you want this thing to be objectively real. You don't want this to be belief or thought exercise, right? But that's what we're doing here. Life is a thought exercise. We remember thinking happens in the mind. The mind is attached to the soul. This don't, don't get turned off. We apply value and meaning to the things that enrich our lives based on the programming of those six cognitive faculties, judgment, perception, consciousness, language, memory, and thinking. And when I say that life itself is a thought exercise, I mean it. We are applying value to what we've been programmed to find value in. Um, if this wasn't the case, there would be a clear line between people living their best life and people living in a hell realm. There would be a clear cut, this is how you do it if you want to be happy line in the sand. But there simply isn't. There's people living their best life on both sides of every issue. People living their worst life on both sides. It doesn't matter. So nothing has intrinsic value. Nothing has intrinsic meaning. So let's look at the word intrinsic. Uh, intrinsic means belonging naturally, essential. Uh, naturally means without special help or intervention in a natural manner um, as, as, uh, as may be expected or of course. So ascent, that's what naturally means. Like, of course it's that way, right? Um, essential means absolutely necessary, extremely important. So we see from these definitions that there is, there is nothing with intrinsic value or meaning. It's not really built into it. Not many things. I mean, don't oxygen and water. I know, but you know what I'm saying. Volvos don't have intrinsic value. Ideas don't have intrinsic value. There's no intrinsic value built into certain philosophies. Value and meaning are largely cultural. In all cultures, they're, they're not the same, Right. Um, I mean, Christ, from Florida to New Jersey, there's 
different values, right? So what's the point me bringing this up? The point is that we are free to create meaning and value in whatever we want. And when that, when that feels strange or causes you to tighten up, ask yourself why. Is it because it will alienate those that you feel you need in order to survive and be happy? Is it because it disrupts your routine? Uh, we can't be afraid to ask ourselves these questions and give ourselves honest answers. And when you're doing this type of inquiry, when you feel an aversion to flipping that particular stone over or probing this question too deeply, that's the one you need to look at. That's the important one. Fear of this, this sort of inquiry will keep you stuck in old patterns of mind and will just create like more of the same experiences. And isn't that the initial reason why we look at alternative beliefs or look to take up a spiritual practice? Isn't it because we want to have a different experience of life other than the one we've had? So God malas, rosary beads, crosses, statues, temples, churches, all of it are symbols. And the meaning of these symbols, which is telling your body how to feel about them, was handed down to us. That's just how it works. That's what culture is. But now we have to look at the motivations of those who are handing the symbols down to us. This is our widget exercise in action. I'm going to spare you running through that again. <laughs> um, people hand symbols down imbued with their meaning, their experience, and essentially their mind. Or yeah, um, We're taking on their karma. We're taking on the karma of those who pass these things down. Karma being the predisposition of mind to attraction and aversion. So for instance, the symbol that my mind knows as the Christian God was handed down with a certain amount of baggage. Um, the Bible, the guidebook for understanding the Christian symbol of God, gives the symbol certain attributes, jealousy, punishment, allowing the torture of the people that are most devoted, things like that. And it took years for me to untangle that stuff. You know, as a side note, um, the Christian Gnostics believe that the Old Testament is basically backward, that if you read it literally, the serpent was trying to educate Eve. Remember, the tree in the center of the garden would give them knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent wanted Eve to have that knowledge. It was the Lord God who didn't want them to have the knowledge of good and evil, which seems very strange to me. You love your children, so you give them knowledge of good and evil, don't you? The Gnostics believed this because uh, the God of the Old Testament was angry and vengeful, and they didn't, to them, it's like, this doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Um, and not to turn this into, you know, allegory part three, but the serpent in all cultures is a good symbol least in other cultures. Uh, the energy that goes up and down the sashumna at the center of the spine is represented as a serpent, also known as the kundalini. And when we do spinal breathing, we are pulling that energy up the spine to the center of the head, where the third eye or pineal gland is. I find this very interesting. Just 
just tossing it out there, you know, whatever. So uh, back to these symbols. Um, another good one is success. That's a really heavy symbol. It's loaded with other people's karma, uh, even hatha yoga, meditation, spirituality. They are all symbols loaded with meaning, loaded with the karma and expectations of others. These things are, they, they almost become toxic on social media. And that's due to this kind of egocentric new age stink that gets rubbed all over them. Um, what do I mean by toxic? I'm referring to toxic positivity, this idea of choosing happiness or that yoga and meditation are going to make you this eternally happy person that floats through life without problems. That's just not the case. Um, these practices are anchors we can use when the inevitable life crisis occurs. We practice them in order to refine our nervous system so that we can experience the growth that samsara has to offer us. You know, in Buddhism, samsara is taught as suffering, and I just don't find samsara to be suffering. I see samsara as growth. Um, you know, it's like there's a saying in Buddhism that enjoyment isn't the problem. Craving is the problem. I would say suffering isn't the problem. Attachment to suffering is the problem. And we become attached to suffering a lot of different ways. So, yeah, we're meaning-making machines. And there's freedom in that once we learn the subjective nature of reality, the subjective nature of this meaning-making process we go through, the subjective nature of symbolism. We learn that uh, we learn to bend and change these symbols to work in our favor. That's the essence of magic, namely, you know, chaos magic, which I'll get into another time. I have no idea where to even start to explain that. That's another one of those things that you just kind of do. And I encourage you to look into it. It's very interesting. Um, a lot of people that I've turned on to it have found it very helpful. And you find that chaos magic is essentially how everything else in the world works. But anyway, um, so often we accept the cultural meaning of, of, of certain things. And in turn, we take on the karma of the culture. Some things are presented to us and the cultural meaning enriches our life. But some things just don't. Uh, but we might feel that we need to have that thing in our life. And that's when we need to dismantle something and basically repurpose it to become something enriching for us. Now, oftentimes something that is enriching for us, and let's say the symbol is working, it's working for us, they can later stop working. But we, you know, we have trouble letting go of it and it becomes a hindrance, right? It becomes a spiritual liability. And this can be people, places, ideas, things, whatever. Religions, who knows? And when that happens, uh, we get a firsthand look at the fact that suffering is rooted in attachment to these things. And I think I mentioned the last one, there's a person that listens to this podcast that we are going to do a podcast together. I want to talk to this person because that, what I just described is literally what happens to a lot of us that are these kind of, you know, ex-Christians that have found that this became a liability. So uh, when it's said, especially within Buddhism, that everything is empty, that emptiness is the essential nature of all things. And when we can perceive it as empty, or at least see that this thing, whatever it is, 
as being filled with someone else's descriptions and basically cultural karma, we get to fill it with something else, something more enriching or helpful. Remember, perception is reality. Perception meaning a way of regarding, understanding, or interpreting something. Um, But I wanted to do this episode because I was having this conversation over text with someone that was kind of bummed out that humans are just making meaning out of things. This person really wants intrinsic value and stuff. Um, What... hmm. They were bummed that I was saying that things are prescribed meaning and that it's not built into it or intrinsic. And you know who you are. You're listening right now. But uh, for me in my life, I've learned to let go. Um, It's taken me some time to relax into life, to kind of lay in the river and float with it. Interesting. Um, pretty sure I've told this story before and I don't know what I've said and what I haven't said. I, when I'm not doing this, I'm always talking to to people about something. So I have no idea, but, um, it was when I had first started working in the mental health field. Um, it was the first time I'd kind of experienced compassion fatigue and that kind of sadness that comes with working in sadness. I remember people would tell me because I'd switched careers And people would say, are you enjoying your new job or your new career? And I would say, no, there's nothing to enjoy. It's a dark, swirling pool of sadness. But I have to do it, right? I I can't explain it. But this experience kind of put it into perspective. So I'd had this dream, and I wrote about the dream, and I think it's in the first book, about um, this person saying that, you know... uh, they're like, I don't want to lose my roots. And I was telling this person who I'd normally go to for advice. I was for some reason in this dream giving them advice, but I was saying, you don't have roots. Uh, you have habits, yada, yada. Um, but I was feeling very dejected, very upset, very sad. I sat down at my desk. Um, I had that dream typed out in a Google document. I was reading it and I got, you know, I started crying because I felt like I just ruined my life by leaving my previous career that was starting to look promising so I could do this kind of thing that was just incredibly sad. But I put my head in my hands and I saw my life. I don't know why the thought came to mind or the the memory came to mind of seeing one of my best friends for the first time. I was like 17, he was 18. We were in this history class together And he was fresh out of like a two and a half year treatment thing because he was just a wild kid. Um, But I saw my life on flip cards flipping through like those old like kind of uh, arcade things where you turn the handle and you see like a movie like on flip cards. And I saw my life like that. And I saw my life, all of these events, meeting him and this person, another friend of mine named Serge who um, kind of always make the joke, he lured me into helping people or he tricked me. But um, we came up together in the punk scene together. And like, I don't know, it was weird the way like, I just, it all led me right here. And I've never believed in fate. I've never believed that there was a plan or any of this kind of stuff. 
Well, I mean, I wrestle with it. I don't, I don't know. I wrestle with whether free will is a thing or not. But anyway, I was, I was here and it dawned on me that I have no choice. That I laid in the river because I ended up working in this field by letting go. I let go of my attachment to career and just noticed the signs popping up. And I always talked about laying in the river. And when you flow with the river, instead of trying to swim faster than the current or against the current, you just, you just get where you're going. Um, I don't know. It's real weird, but I don't feel like I have a choice. And, and not in a begrudgingly way, but kind of in like a relief. Like, hey, I'm just, I'm just along for the ride, man. Um, I remember sitting outside with a client that was having a very hard time and you know, she was crying and she said, well, what's the point? What's the point in life? And I just said, I don't know. Right. Like I, no idea. I told her that at this point, I'm just having fun. I'm having fun with everything that shows up. And sometimes it's death. Sometimes it's sickness. Sometimes it's heartache, a broken heart, whatever it is, you know, um, I remember my last big heartbreak when, you know, this person that I had been living with for about four years, we were together for about five and, you know, uh, you know, we all play our part in the death of a relationship, but I remember us splitting up and it felt like the appropriate next thing, you know, and it, but it still hurt, you know, it hurt very bad. And I just lost my mom and it was kind of just a messy time for me. And I remember thinking it doesn't matter. You just keep going forward because this is the next thing. It doesn't matter how we got here. That That's where I had that thought one time. It's like life or God or the universe is pushing me so fast in the direction that I inevitably want to be in that it feels like it's peeling the skin off my face, right? Um, I know that where I'm at right now at 45... I don't have to struggle, man. Things just appear and I just do. And in that there is a lot of peace and ease and it allows for a lot of fun, even when it's a absolute horror show. But I don't know who said it, but some philosopher somewhere said, and I, I want to, some of you know, and I want to say it's Schopenhauer. So send me a DM and correct me, please. Cause I'm a dummy. I don't know. But it was uh, the choice, the only choice man has to make is whether to kill himself or not. Well, I'm not going to kill myself. That just doesn't appeal to me. I don't have the urge or really the lack of urge or the lack of drive. Um, I'm driven, but not in like a Tony Robbins kind of way, right? Like as much as I do love Tony Robbins, he's great. I, I feel driven in the way a river is driven. It just flows and it goes. It it turns when it turns and it's straight when it's straight. And I don't know. So, so let's say life is empty. You could also say from the same place, life is meaningless. Well, fine. Life is meaningless and empty of intrinsic value. Okay. Then I'm going to go ahead and do what I want. I'm going to fill it with the things that I find enriching, the things that make me happy. And when those things change, which they will change, I'll let go of them. I'll go and I'm, I'm going to do my best to flow and release, hold and release. 
embrace and release, I don't know, grasp and release, whatever it is. Um, like I said, you know, it's the clinging that's the problem. The attachment is the problem. Um, when we learn that reality is malleable, uh, that it is an empty vessel to be filled with what we choose to fill it with, and we do have the ability to alter our reality. We understand the true... This is the true meaning of magic, that we can alter our reality. We can alter our perception. And this always takes me back to the widget exercise that I throw out there every time that I feel like I'm shoving down your throat. When you can understand it, you see what's happening. This is what Juan Matus or, or Don Juan in Carlos Castaneda's books was trying to teach him when he would say things like, you live in a description of reality. Reality is a description. It was described to you. They told you that life was hard. They told you that the best you'd able to, to get from this birth, they told you what you could get from it. And that was it. And since they were in charge, you were trained to believe them. Why were you trained that way? Because they were doing the training. And no, I, I don't believe it's a nefarious thing. I don't believe that they were trying to fool us. I just think it was what, it was what they knew. It was what they were taught. Some people are rule followers and they see that as safety. So they go along with it. They bought it. Then, you know, then they sold it, right? They bought it, then they sold it to us. And, you know, I'm not mad about it, but I'm definitely not playing along, right? I mean, shit, I, I tried I took on their symbol of success. And when I did, I ended up with the culture's karma. I ended up with, with their problems. So I dumped it. And now I don't have their problems. Do they creep in? Yeah, they start to. But it gets shut down. And culturally, I believe this is a slow thing, right? Um, it starts in this... It, it's, it tries to push its way in in the early 19th century, right? But ultimately, with Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and these people and like uh, Stanislav Grof, if you, you really want to have some fun, read Stanislav Grof's Cosmic Game. But these people introducing these ideas into our collective unconscious is what gives us the opportunity now to not have to buy the success symbol or whatever the symbol is. Now, how do we empty the vessel? How do we empty the symbol we do it through meditative practice. Um, I'm going to do another episode on meditation, but just to wrap this up, uh, meditation creates the space that I've mentioned so many times. Um, there is a stimulus and then there is a response. The response will either prop up or reinforce the meaning of the symbol or it won't. So the space in the mind... Um, if we can cultivate space in the mind, we can see the meaning creep up we can see the body respond to the meaning. And with practice, uh, we see it, feel it, not respond to it, don't feed into it. And when we do that, we have an opportunity to fill it with something else or leave it empty. I don't know. And like I said, I'll do another episode on meditation. It'll probably be the next one, honestly. So that's it for whatever this episode was about. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think it was about nothing the Seinfeld of episodes. Um, 
I hope it was helpful. I hope that you found this beneficial. Um, and as usual, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to reach out. I'll always respond. And as I mentioned before, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of this fucking thing uh, and all of its facets, I do have some plans. I have some fun plans for the election season, whenever that happens. Please do that at theinfinitesparkofbean.com, where there is a link to the Patreon, as well as a link to the books and other merch like shirts, tank tops, and posters. We're old friends. Reach out. Don't be weird about it. Bye. Bye.